You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. visitor and you're with us, very glad that you're here. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, uh, I go by Ant. I get to serve as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad you're here, especially if it's your first time. We would love for you to meet us, meet one of our host team members in the lobby just on, on this side of this, these curtains over here after the service is over. We'd love to get to know you uh, a little bit better. We're in the middle of our, actually we're towards the end of our Warriors series. Uh, we'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 4. We'll be starting at verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hopefully we have a Bible near you, uh, in front of you. You can go ahead and grab that one and turn there if you want to. Uh, feel free to use a phone or if you brought your Bible with you. That would, be, that would be great as well. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. i got to be honest, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 4. It might, might actually be my favorite. So... Uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament and the authors in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters, 13 of the books that are in the New Testament. He, he wrote more than anyone, any other author, any other writer in the New Testament. And 2 Timothy chapter 4 is the last chapter we have from him. He's writing it to his closest disciple, Timothy, someone who he calls a son, someone very, very dear to him. And this is towards the end of Paul's life, as we'll see when we read into the passage but it's important to note what Paul's condition is as he writes this letter. Because it's important for how we interpret and understand what's actually going on with him as, as he writes it. He is, he is imprisoned. He is facing the death penalty. He is likely in something that is very similar to a dungeon, right? Where there is absolutely, most likely, no sanitation involved in this room. They don't care about him at all. He's about to be executed, most likely beheaded. When I say no sanitation, I'm saying he's probably sitting in the same room with his waist as he writes this, right? So we want to think about what, what is Paul going through because his words are extremely, extremely powerful here, especially that he would write them given the situation that he is currently in. In the middle of much turmoil and difficulty, I want us to think through what would our mindsets be if this were our life, where Paul finds himself as he's writing 2 Timothy chapter 4. Again, the last chapter that we have from him, he's facing his death. He knows he's about to die. He's in a horrible, he's in a horrible situation. What does he focus on? What does he want to say to his closest disciple, the one who he calls a son? What would he communicate? What would you communicate if you were in similar situation? What would you feel? What would you be thinking? In the first seven verses of this chapter, Paul reveals to us what he cares about. And I believe in the eighth verse, he shows us how he's able to maintain the mindset and the approach that he has. We'll start with verse one and verse two. This is Paul giving this charge to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing kingdom. Right? So Paul's adding weight to this charge that he's about to give to Timothy. He's saying, I'm charging you in front of God, who's going to judge the living and the dead, the judge of all of creation. I am charging you in his presence in front of him. He wants Timothy to understand this is heavy, what I'm about to say to you. This is important. This matters. Right? He has a limited amount of words left to give to Timothy. Some historians say he might not have even known if he was going to be able to finish the letter before they carried him off to be 
beheaded, right? He has a limited amount of time. What's this weighty charge that he gives to Timothy? Here, Timothy's marching orders. Timothy's a young pastor, verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He tells Timothy, I'm about to die. Obviously, Paul was, was a great preacher. He's about to leave. He's telling, telling Timothy, now I need you to carry it on. I need you to continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus in season, out of season. When people want to hear it, when people don't want to hear it, you continue preaching. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He's warning Timothy, this is not going to be easy. Not only are people not going to want to listen to you, and not only are they going to go to these other preachers and teachers that are teaching false things, he says they're going to accumulate these things, accumulate these preachers around them just to tell them the things that they want to hear. Verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, more on that a little bit, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, Timothy, you continue doing what you know you're supposed to be doing. Endure whatever comes. Verse 6, Paul begins to let Timothy know why it's important that he takes this charge on right now. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come, referring to his death. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. My time is up, Timothy. It's your turn now. We need you to carry this on. Timothy is going to need to be able to endure. If, this, if, the, if Christianity is going to continue on and, and, the, and the Roman government is killing the leaders of the Christian movement... Timothy's going to have to be able to endure all of the difficult times. He has to be able to not let anything stop him from continuing his race, his course. Paul said, I have finished the race. That, that term race can be translated course. The course it is used to refer to the course that is laid out for, for athletes who, who are running to try to win a prize. Paul says, I have finished the race. He didn't say he finished his own race. Paul had finished a race that was laid out for him and given to him. I don't think Paul would have chosen his own course. I don't think he would have chosen for his life to go the way that his life went. If you're familiar with this story, Paul was, was growing in, in Judaism, growing in esteem. He was, he was brilliant. He had a lot of respect. He had a lot of authority to the point that he, he was killing and helping to destroy Christians and trying to destroy Christianity, right, before he came to faith in Christ. In fact, before Jesus came to him and revealed himself to him, he was on the road to, on the road to Damascus to try to continue to destroy or stomp out this what they consider a, little, a small sect of Judaism that we now call Christianity. He was tormenting Christians. And God... Well, Jesus appeared to him on that road to Damascus. Paul fell off of his horse. Eventually, Jesus reveals to him, Paul, you're going to have to suffer a lot for this kingdom. This wasn't punishment to Paul. 
This wasn't, Paul, you've been, you've been destroying the kingdom of God or seeking to destroy the kingdom of God, so now you're going to have to suffer a lot as you work to build it. It wasn't punishment. This was just the reality of the responsibility that he was given. That part of his responsibility was he was going to have to endure suffering, just like he's calling Timothy to do right here. He was going to have to deal with many things. His course was not an easy one, not one I don't believe that he would have chosen, definitely not one that I would have chosen. I want to try to explain a little bit about Paul's course specifically. Because in 2 Corinthians, he, he goes through this list of things that he has suffered for the sake of the kingdom of God. Now, to understand what he's doing in 2 Corinthians, we'll read it in a minute, is in, the, in and around the Corinthian church, these false teachers, these false apostles have come in and they're discrediting Paul. They're saying that Paul is a false apostle and that, and that the Corinthian church should actually follow these new guys who, who are coming in. They're talking down on Paul and they're saying he's not legitimate. And so Paul is going to defend himself as a minister of the gospel, get this, by how much he has suffered for it. He's going to defend the fact that he is a legit apostle, leader in the body of Christ, in the kingdom of God, by how much he has been willing to suffer for the cause of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11, we'll start at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? He's referring to the people who have come in and have been talking down on him, who have been belittling him. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. Paul doesn't like to boast about himself in these ways. He says he feels like he's, he's being a madman when he does this. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. He's saying, these are things that I have. So I've been imprisoned far more times than them. I've had cases. I can't even keep count of the amount of times I've been beat up because of my faith. Verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. It was believed at that time that if they beat you, for, if they gave you 40 lashes, it would kill you. So they said it at 39 just so they didn't kill you. They basically wanted to beat you within an inch of your life, but not kill you, likely so they could continue to torture you. Verse 25, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Verse 26, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, referring to the Jews, danger from the Gentiles, everyone who wasn't a Jew, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And I'll continue reading verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in, hungry, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He lived a very difficult like this was his course that he said he finished. This was the course that, that was laid out for him that he was called to run with much suffering, much difficulty. And yet I'm, I bring that up because I'm baffled a little bit about this chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 4, because when I'm reading what he's saying, I don't sense any bitterness. I don't sense any resentment. I don't sense any, I can't believe why would God call me to, to do this. This is not what, what I wanted my life to become. I mean, not only has he suffered all these things that he lays out in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but right now he's likely, again, sitting in this dungeon awaiting to be beheaded. But as he talks about it, it's hopeful. As he looks back on his life and looks forward to what's become, it's powerfully hopeful. It's not resentful. It's triumphant. How can this be? How can... This seemed like such a triumph and a victory for him with all that he has endured in the past and all that he is currently having to endure. 
How can he be positive and hopeful in spite of what is currently going on? And it's like, how can he rise above what his circumstances say he should be thinking and feeling and experiencing, it seems? From the outside looking in, Paul's had a horrible life. He's had a horrible life. I know we've all taken losses in our lives, but most of us have not endured what Paul has endured. Yet, as he looks back at these things, he talks about it like he won. Like he won in this life. He's not looking back. God, I served you. Why does my life look like this? God, I did this for you. I followed you more than that person did, and they have the thing that I want. Why is that? This is what I would expect his life to be, knowing what he experienced. But even though he sacrificed more seemingly than anybody and suffered so much for the cost of Christ, he's still hopeful. He looks back, he looks forward, and it sounds triumphant. How can this be? How does the bitterness not set in? It would be an easy time to feel very entitled to a better life. Easy time to feel like, God, you should be answering this prayer by now after all I've done for you. That's a prison. That's a prison to be in, right? You understand if you feel entitled to certain blessings in life based on the things that you have, that you have accomplished or the things that you have done, you, you, you strap yourself into disappointment in your life. Paul is free from that prison. He's in a physical prison, but he's free from the prison of entitlement, feeling like God owes him something. Jesus. Paul is in chains, but he's more free, it seems, than anyone else. He's liberated from just living at the mercy of his circumstances. How does this happen? How does Paul get to this place? I believe the answer is in verse 8. I'll read it again. And after that, I want to point out three things that I believe Paul knew that helped him have this perspective and attitude. Actually, before I read, let me say this. I've talked a lot about being a warrior in this series. And I've tried, I've hoped that the Holy Spirit would use it to galvanize us, that we would move forward and be in warriors. Let's understand something very clearly. Being a warrior is not easy. It essentially involves pain and difficulty. Fighting is supposed to be difficult, something Paul knows extremely well. Fighting is exhausting. It's discouraging at times. How might we have the same perspective and attitude that Paul has? Verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. This crown, it was the victor's crown. It was when you ran your race and you won, you stood before whoever the judge was, and they would give you this crown saying you won. It was this time where you realized that everything you had put into it, everything you had gone through, was worth it in the end. He says, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. The righteous judge, the same judge he brought up in verse 1 when he says, I charge you in light of he who will judge the living and the dead. That judge, he said, is going to give him a crown. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Three things that I believe I'm convinced Paul knew that helped him to have the perspective and the strength that he had. Number one, he knew his reward would be greater than his sufferings. Paul knew his reward would be greater than his sufferings. Amen. I want to talk to anyone who, for the cause of Christ, has suffered anything, loss of relationships, because of serving Christ. People maybe have, have talked down on you, maybe, maybe left you, hurt your feelings in some way. Look at what Paul says, Romans 8, 18. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I consider that these sufferings, you just saw the list of his sufferings. I've been beaten more times than I can count. I can't even tell you how many times I've been beaten for the sake of Christ. But I've come to conclude that the sufferings of this present time don't compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. That the lows of this life don't compare to the highs of the next life. That even though we'll experience difficulty for however many years we'll, we'll live on this life, 70, 80, 90, maybe more years, he will be experiencing ultimate joy for a trillion times a trillion years, and he'll just be getting started is what he's saying. That the sufferings of this present time don't compare to the glory that will be revealed to us. When my wife and I got married, we were talking, well, actually before we got married, we were talking about how many kids we both wanted to have. I said zero to two. Be lying easy. We had twins the first time. I was good. Loved it. I got a fourth on the way. So you just know how our marriage goes, right? My fourth is on the way. Because she said four to six, I should say. I said zero to two. She said four to six. We got our fourth one on the way. That's what my marriage is like. I don't know what yours is like. So when she was giving birth to the twins, uh, she had a lot of difficulties going on. She was uh, actually hospitalized five times in the process. If you're not familiar with what the process is, you have these uh, consistent checkups. So basically five times when she went in for a checkup, the doctor said, hey, something's not right with either you or with one of the children, so you got to stay overnight in the hospital. we got to do more, more tests and that kind of thing. And then the last four weeks of, the, of her pregnancy, she was on bed rest. She had severe pre- preeclampsia. Blood pressure was, was through the roof. She also had pups. If you know what that is, you know it's unbearable, basically. For the last checkup we went into, her blood pressure was so high that the doctor was like, hey, we got to deliver, deliver this baby today. So we're just going to go ahead and induce. And um, at that time, when, after the inducing took place, my son Malachi, he wasn't doing well during the labor. His heart rate was dropping, I think, to a third of what they wanted it to be during the labor. So he ended up having an, an emergent C-section. And so all that to say, after all that happened, I thought my wife was going to change her mind on how many children she wanted to have. Like, I literally went to her and I was like, I know you wanted more. That was extremely difficult. Like, it's, if you want to stop it too, like, I'm, I'm okay with that. Like, that, that, I know that you had to go through a lot and deal with a lot. And that, she looked at me like I was crazy. She looked at me like I was crazy. Like, I saw the difficulty she was, like, it made me hurt seeing her hurt in the way that she was hurting. And she looked at me like I was crazy. She was like, no, I would do it all again. Amen. <laughs> she said, no, I would do it all again. That reminded me that when you know the joys of the end, it enables you to have the endurance to deal with whatever is going on in the present. It reminded me, I, I was like, can't, I literally couldn't fathom that she would want to do that again. But for her, it was like, no, the joy of having our children and potentially having more is worth the suffering. It's ultimately what she was saying. Was worth the suffering. If the prize is high enough, we'll endure what we have to to obtain it. She was saying that in the moment, she has so much joy about having more children that she'll go through whatever she has to go through in order to experience that again. If I could borrow Paul's words, she was essentially saying, I consider that the sufferings that I went through aren't worth comparing to the joy of having more children in our home. 
And let's not confuse Paul with someone that didn't understand pain. He knew pain extremely well. He knew how horrible it is. He's faced hatred, oppression, attempted murder, trauma like you wouldn't believe. Yet his revelation of, of paradise in the next life gave him strength to continue on. His, his understanding of what was coming next allowed him to be able to endure whatever he was dealing with at that time. He knew it would all be worth it in the end. He knew there was only a matter of time before he got to experience greater joy than he had ever known and that he had been longing for for years. When we as warriors can, through the eyes of faith, see the reality of our true home, we can see that all the sufferings that come along with being warriors in the kingdom of God, we can see those sufferings with new eyes. I know fighting the good fight of faith is hard. Fighting against the enemy is hard. Fighting to walk in holiness instead of following our flesh is difficult. Instead of following the world is difficult. Continuing to love people that mistreat you and love our enemies is difficult. Bearing with people within our church, it's difficult for you to bear with people in your life group, in our church. God never said it wouldn't be hard. He just promises that it will be worth it in the end. He never says it wouldn't be hard. He says it will be worth it, that the glory is so great that the pain... It does not compare. During the civil rights movement, so to speak, here in, uh, especially in the South, there was a song that took place. You have to think of, uh, of especially African Americans who are having to, to endure and deal with so much and still be able to fight. And one of the songs that became a bit of an anthem for the movement has lyrics like this. Now, the only thing I did wrong, staying in the wilderness, too long. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. The only thing we did right was the day we started to fight. Keep your eyes on the prize. Hold on. That last little line in both of those standards repeats as a refrain, refrain throughout the song. Why would they have something that's talking about the future be used to motivate what the difficulty that's going on right now? It's because if you find the prize in the end to be worth it, you can endure whatever you have to endure to be able to continue on. Paul is encouraging Timothy to endure suffering. Eyes on the prize. Hold on. It's a song to help fight in the present, but has a repetitive focus on the future. Does your life have a repetitive focus on the future, on the prize that is to come, on the crown that will be given to you? If not, I believe it's no wonder that maybe we're overly discouraged by the difficulties in our life right now, by the fact that our life isn't what we thought it would be right now. Because if you don't focus on the future, then all you'll know is this earth to be home. And you don't see yourself as a pilgrim that's passing through, that's just trying to get home. You consider this earth, this life, to be your home, so it needs to be better. It needs to be great, or otherwise you can't have true joy and true peace. But if you understand that there's another home, that we're just traveling here, we're going to be here for a little bit of time in comparison. But that's really where our life will be, with him. If we don't have that repetitive, ongoing focus on the life that is to come, we imprison ourselves to discouragement because then we need this life to be more than it was ever promised to be for us. Paul, he knew that his reward would be greater than his suffering. That he should keep his eyes on the prize. And the same, the same is true for us. The second thing that Paul knew 
is that his suffering made his victory more glorious. His suffering made his victory more glorious. His suffering made his victory more glorious. When I, my freshman year uh, of college, uh, I, I took, I think I had like five courses or something like that. And in one of the courses, it was University 101. It was supposed to be an easy class. I got a really good grade in it. I wasn't that excited about it. I also had Biology 102. And I had been warned about how difficult this class was going to be. And man, I, st- I probably studied four times more for that class than I did any other class that semester. I mean, I studied with so much content. I ended up getting an A in that class. And I was excited about that one. The other one, University 101, was supposed to be an easy A. I, wasn't, I was not concerned. I wouldn't tell anybody that one. But that one that I stayed up for, I'm talking about when I was studying for exams, I pulled multiple all-nighters. I remember going to a basketball game with friends and pulling flashcards out of my pocket in between like halftime and intermission and things like that to study for this exam. But everything, all the sacrifice I had to put into it made the A that much more enjoyable. It made the accomplishment sweeter. The sacrifice that you put into something sweetens the reward at the end. It it sweetens the victory at the end of it. I want us to look into what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He talks about how he does not lose heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. When he's talking about wasting away, he's talking about through the trials, the difficulties, the pains, and everything that he has to suffer because of the way that he is serving Christ. If you're familiar with the beginning of the book, he talks about even thinking that he, maybe he was going to die because of the sufferings that he was dealing with. Verse 17, for this light momentary affliction, I want to break this verse down a little bit, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's saying that part of the reason he doesn't lose heart is because he knows that these afflictions, which are light and momentary compared to the eternal glory, he says they are light and momentary in comparison to what's coming in the next life. But notice what he does with his words here. He's saying that his afflictions are light, opposite of heavy, lacking matter, lacking substance. He says that they are momentary, lasting for just an instant, just a moment. And then look how he talks about the glory. He says, and they are preparing for him an eternal weight of glory. Eternal, opposite of momentary that he talked about earlier. Eternal weight of glory, opposite of light. Talking about having matter, having substance, being more important. So he's saying that the glory is greater than the affliction and the suffering. We've already established that. But also don't miss the word in between those two things that he's contrasting. He says the light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That Greek word for preparing can be translated, it is accomplishing for us, it is achieving for us, it is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. The light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. What is he talking about? Part of the glory we'll experience is the fact that we'll be overcomers, that we will triumph, that we'll have victory. But there is no victory without opposition. There is no overcomer without something to overcome. There there is no triumph without something to triumph over. That the victory is always sweeter when you had to go through something in order for you to get there. 
Your afflictions are helping to produce the glory that you experience because in the next life, you won't know the glory of joy from salvation if you didn't have anything to be saved from. You won't know the glory and the joy of being made new and being made alive if you weren't first spiritually dead before coming to know Christ. You won't know the joy of being able to overcome death and suffering and grief if you have not lived in a world that had death and suffering and grief. You won't know the glory of the cross of Jesus if you don't know about sin and you haven't experienced sin. He's saying these momentary afflictions are producing an eternal weight of glory. You won't know what it is to be victorious over the kingdom of darkness if you haven't fought against it first. Your afflictions are preparing a real, tangible, joyous glory for you. Paul gives us insight into his focus, and I'm convinced that this is part of what helped him to not lose heart. Verse 18, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. I hope you caught the play on words that Paul is using there. We look not to the seen, but the unseen. He's saying we look through the eyes of faith. We look and see what we don't see. I'll tell you why I say that, because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, he says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. That's just seven verses later when he talks about walking by faith and not by sight. Paul is saying we live not by what we see here, but what we see through the eyes of faith. Paul says this is how he is able to endure. He looks at what he can't see. He believes in it so much that it's as if he can see it. He lives by faith. Faith in what? That no matter how difficult it is right now for him to follow Christ, every one of his difficulties are serving as a stepping stone for him to more joy when he goes on to meet his Savior. That they serve to make it sweeter. I wonder if we, soldiers, warriors in the kingdom of God, can see through the eyes of faith and thus reinterpret our suffering. And thus gain new perspective on the difficulties in our life, especially the difficulties of following Christ and serving him, loving God and loving others. I wonder if we can can look at them also through the eyes of faith. To not only see these difficulties and these sufferings as things that are making things worse for us, but, but understanding that God in his sovereign power and sovereign control even uses the greatest weapons of the enemy to bring us joy in the end. I wonder if we can reinterpret our suffering with the sovereign God who's powerful enough to use even the worst things in your life for his glory and to grant you joy on the other side. I wonder if we're able to reinterpret our suffering enough to be able to to speak about our life and even our death with with a hopeful expectation of of more joy on on the other side. And make no mistake, Christian, you will know victory. You will know victory. You will know it well. You will know it better than you know pain right now. You will know it better than you know grief and suffering right now. 
you will know it better than you know sin and difficulty and struggle and pain right now. Look how Paul talks about it, Romans chapter 8, verse 37. You can fly this banner over all the difficulties in your life. No, in all things, all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who have loved us. You can fly that banner over every shortcoming you've experienced, over every failure you've experienced and endured, over every battle you've lost, over every bit of disappointment and pain and doubt and fear and guilt and shame and inadequacies, over every tear you've cried, over all your grief, over all hopelessness and all sin. You can fly that banner over all of it where Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You will know victory. You will know victory. And you will be victorious over all of these things. All your worst enemies will serve as a step stool for you as you get to the glory God has designed for you to enjoy. How could Paul maintain such a degree of hopefulness in all of his suffering and everything he had to endure? Paul knew that his suffering made his victory more glorious. He knew it made his victory even more glorious. The third thing I want to point out that Paul knew is that what he really wanted most was Jesus. What he really wanted most was Jesus. We're going to look at verse 8 one more time. Because if you read it too fast, you might have missed what he said at the end of verse 8. That's extremely key to everything that we're talking about today. Remember, every word in the Bible is important. Let's make sure we didn't miss something in verse 8. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, catch this, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To who? To all who have tried to live a good life? To all who have tried to be good people, to all who came to church every Sunday, to all who grew up in Christian families, for all who did enough things to try to make Jesus accept them. That's not what he's saying. For all who have loved his appearing. To all who want Jesus. To all who love him and just want to be with him. You know, there's a difference between trying to follow a lot of biblical principles and actually loving Jesus, right? You know, there's a difference between coming to church every Sunday and actually truly loving Jesus. There's a difference between trying to be the best person that you can possibly be or trying to be a good Christian and actually loving Jesus. He also doesn't say to all who don't want to go to hell, to all who long to have their problems taken away, to all who long to have victory over death. He's not talking about those who see Jesus as an opportunity or as a key to get them another treasure. He's talking about those who see Jesus as the treasure and what they actually long for more than anything else. He says those are the ones who receive the crown, who love his appearing. He didn't say those those who love the disappearing of everything bad that will be taken away from them. He said those who love his appearing. All those things are great. Everything's going to take away. That's amazing. It's good to desire those things. But he's saying that the ones that get the crown are the ones that really just want to see Jesus. They just love his his appearing. There's a question that I heard from John Piper that, in my opinion, gets to the heart of this better than anything else I've heard. Piper asked the question, would you be satisfied to go to heaven Have everybody there in your family that you want there. Have all the health and restoration of your prime and everything you dislike about yourself fixed. 
have every recreation you've ever dreamed available to you, and have infinite resources of money to spend, would you be satisfied if God were not there? Is Jesus the key to get you the thing that you really want, or is Jesus what you really want? What Paul says here is that the crown goes to those who love his appearing, who just want to see him, who just want Jesus, who see his love, his righteousness, his grace, his mercy, his justice, and say, I want more of him. I want him. He's what I want. Everything else I'm good with or without, but give me him. He is what I am actually after. When I get home from work, one of my greatest joys in life is my daughter. She's a little under two years old now. When, when my wife opens the, the door when I'm coming home, she runs to the door and just screams, Daddy, 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 Daddy. She's not looking for gifts. It doesn't matter what I have in my hand. She's not concerned with that. The only thing she's concerned with is when I walk in the door, she's going to run and grab my leg because what she wants is me. We all have to ask ourselves, is Jesus what we want? Paul is saying the crown goes to those that want Jesus, who love his appearing, who just want to see him. Well, we see this life is just sitting at the door. He's coming. He's coming. I can't wait to see him. I can't wait to be with him. I can't wait to see him. Paul, that's why Paul can say to live is Christ and to die is gain because the gain is him. That we understand that heaven is in heaven if Jesus isn't there. It's not heaven. It's something worse. It's something less. So if we find ourselves in a place where we struggle to endure the difficulties of this life, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we in this whole Christianity thing and trying to do this life thing primarily to get all the bad stuff out of our lives and have as many good comforts and pleasures and everything that we can possibly have? Or is the chief end where we find our joy just being with Jesus, just knowing him, just loving him? Just seeing and remembering everything that he has done, everything that he is doing, everything that he will do for us. I want to encourage us to pursue growing in our joy in him and just knowing him. If Christ is what you really desire, you can do without having the best life here. You can do without having the best life here because you got what you really want. You got Jesus. If Christ is what you really desire, you can do without making as much money as you want to make. Why? Because you got Jesus. Because you have the thing that you really want. If Christ is what you really desire, you can be free from the frustration and the, imp- and the prison of entitlement because you have what you really want. And you know you didn't even earn that. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You got what you didn't deserve, which happens to be everything in Christ. If Christ is what you really desire, you can have joy right in the middle of your hardship and suffering and trial. Why? Because you have Christ. So you can still have joy no matter what comes. This is how Paul can continue to have joy. He's been beaten more times than he can count, and he is hopeful, and he is triumphant. If Christ is what you really desire, you can walk in victory in this life, and your circumstances do not rule you. Your circumstances do not control you. Your circumstances do not rob you of joy in Christ because Christ is what you are after all the time. If Christ is what you really desire, you can confess like Paul does for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. And we can continue to walk through this life with Christ and join him and then know that death is just the door to get us where we really want to go, where we can see him face to face because we love his appearing. 
there's no life lived like the life of the one who understands that Christ is really all I want. That Christ is the best thing. Because everything else in this life can be taken away from you. But if you are in him, you are joined with him and he is yours and you are his. And that cannot be taken away from you. The saints of old, I should say, maybe I shouldn't say, would say this joy I have. Somebody know what I'm talking about. This joy I have, the world didn't give it and the world can't take it away. If Christ is what you really want, if Christ is what you really desire, then we can face the worst affliction. If Christ is what we really desire, we can face the worst that sin causes us to experience, which is death itself, and understand that it actually blesses us in the end. Because we go on to be with the one that we wanted all alone. How do we grow in loving his appearing? How do we grow in just loving him and just wanting more of him? I got three things. We want to go through them real quick. First one, meditate on the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. Think about it. Read it. Think about it more. Pray through it. Continue to read it. Pick it back up again when you don't want to pick it up and continue to meditate on the word of God. If you do not have a Bible and you can't do that, find one that's around you. Take it with you. Write your name in it and meditate on the word of God of God. Consider him, his love, his compassion, his righteousness, his beauty, his power, his glory. Meditate on the scripture. Second is pray. Spend time with him through prayer. Spend time with him. Talk to him. Share your heart with him. I I try to tell people oftentimes it's very important that we pour out our hearts to God. It helps us to really truly see him as a friend. The things that you will only tell a close friend, talk to God about those things. The things that you find difficult to share with most people, share that with him. Talk to him. Share the depths of your soul with him. And ask him to open your heart and teach you to love him and appreciate and love his appearing. Thoroughly fellowship deeply with other believers. Share your life with those that know and love him and will encourage you in your faith. That will point you back to him. That will remind you of his goodness, of his greatness. That will encourage you in your faith when it's difficult. And that will be difficult. And continue to press on because it is worth it for you to love Jesus more, to love knowing him more, to love his appearing more. When all the sacrifices from being a Christian and all the suffering and all the trials of life become increasingly difficult to you, remember that your victory will be greater than your sufferings, that your suffering will make your victory more glorious And really what we deep down want more than anything else is Jesus himself. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for giving us you. You've given us hundreds of blessings, more than we're able to count. Thank you for giving us yourself, making yourself known to us, that we can know you and your love, which is greater than even what we can fathom and even imagine, your forgiveness, which is greater than any other forgiveness we've ever received, your your kindness your nearness, your presence with us. Father, make us a people that just love you, that just want to be with you, that just can't wait to to see you and love the fact that because of your love, you're going to take away all the pain, you're going to take away all the hurt and all the grief and all the sin. But that's because of who you are. That's because of your goodness. Help us to love the giver more than the gift. Help us to interpret the difficulties in this life appropriately. 
in light of all eternity where we will go on to be with you. We need your Holy Spirit to do this work in our lives. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen.